Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, we're going to start in verse 11. We'll be reading from verse 11 to 19 as we continue in our series in Luke. Luke 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he, that being Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word, as we examine your word, that your spirit through your word would examine us. That you would cause in us a great gratitude for the grace that we have in Jesus. That we would see our guilt, our uncleanness, the most serious uncleanness we have, which is in our heart. That we would know that your grace is greater still. That we would trust your son Jesus. That we would rejoice in him and be grateful people. Pray that your word would be made understandable to us by your spirit, and that we would repent and rejoice over what you say, that we would have ears to hear what your spirit says to the churches. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week is Thanksgiving, and, and you know what, what that means. It, it means that we all get together with family and friends, some of whom we like and some of whom we don't, but we still get together, and... And then we commit gluttony, right? And then we reflect on what we're thankful for. And <laughs> thanks, Cindy. You followed it. Nobody else did. But I appreciate that you got it. I'm going to invite Cindy over to my house more often. <laughs> That's what we do. And every year at Thanksgiving, I, I wish that the, the pilgrims had run into the Mexicans and we had a different kind of food. But... <laughs> what I wish. But here we are. Somehow I managed to, to, to choke it all down though, somehow. But this is a time in which we gather to talk about what we're thankful for. And most families do something to talk about what they're thankful for. And this is a great passage to be in this week because it deals with thankfulness. Though it might surprise you as to how it deals with thankfulness. As we look at this passage, we should probably ask the question, why is this passage here? One of the important things when you're studying the Bible and reading the Bible is to be asking the question, why has the author and why has the Holy Spirit superintended through the author to place a passage in a particular place? He has an intent. 
The author is trying to communicate something to us. So why does he place this passage here? Why does Luke throw a passage about thankfulness in at this point in his book? One can see how it ties to verses 7 through 10 to a degree in verses 7 through 10 as he tells the parable of the unworthy servant and says, listen, don't be entitled. And you could see how being entitled is the opposite of being thankful and you could see some sort of tie between the passages there. But Luke doesn't want us to really make that close a tie in this passage as much as he wants us to transition to a new topic. He wants us to transition to a topic, and we know that because if you look at verse 11, he shows that he's transitioned to a topic with this phrase at the beginning of verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem. He was passing between, uh, along between Samaria and Galilee. In other words, in some way, on his way to Jerusalem, he's passing along between Samaria and Galilee, which here's the thing about that geographically, that means he's going east-west, which doesn't make a lot of sense that he's passing along the border because instead of going down toward Jerusalem, he's kind of coming back and forth into, into Samaria and Galilee. So why does Luke say on the way to Jerusalem, he's doing this? Why isn't he going south? Why is he going across Samaria and Galilee at this time, back and forth? And how is that on the way to Jerusalem? What is Luke doing in this passage? Why such a stark transition? Why go from this phrase, we are unworthy servants, we've only done what was our duty, to on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee? What's Luke's project here? The transition is in fact so stark that some scholars argue, and you can go read them, some scholars argue that Luke is just throwing in another story without much regard for arranging it purposefully in this location. Some scholars should say, man, this is a stark transition. What is Luke doing? Maybe he doesn't have any reason for it. Maybe there's really no purpose in, in the arrangement of this text. Maybe he's just kind of throwing some stuff together as he moves through his material. However, that's not what Luke says his project is in writing. He says in chapter one, look at chapter one really quickly of the gospel of Luke. He tells us that his, his project in writing is to give an orderly account. Look at chapter one, verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. In other words, Theophilus, I want to write an orderly account for you. I have talked to all of these eyewitnesses. I have sought them out. I have learned about this, and I want to compile an orderly account for you, Theophilus. Why? So that, verse four, you may have certainty concerning the things with which you have been taught. I want you to have certainty about Jesus, who he is, and what his mission is. I want you to have a certainty about that, so I've provided this orderly account from all this eyewitness testimony to tell you about him. I want you to know him better. So then, given that, why does Luke place this passage on Thanksgiving here? If it's an orderly account, why does he make such a stark transition? Well, what if the passage is about more than thankfulness? 
See, I think it's easy to come to the passage and say, well, he's teaching on this and now he's teaching on thankfulness and it's sort of proverbial in its flow. It really doesn't have much of a thought pattern for Luke. But what if he's telling us about something more than just being thankful? What if Luke is pointing toward something more as he's propelling the narrative forward? See, I want to argue that the geographical marker at the beginning there on the way to Jerusalem is not incidental. And actually, it's more thematic than it is geographical. Luke is driving after a theme, a concept he wants them to grasp, but the geography matters because that theme is fulfilled in the geography of Jerusalem, the geographical location there. Luke is forwarding the narrative toward Jerusalem, and this is an intentional directional marker for him to get us to focus on something, and I want to to basically push forward the idea to you that what he's trying to get us to focus on is who Jesus is and what his mission is. Look at at Luke 9, chapter 9, verse 51, because I want you to see this directional marker there as well. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. This isn't the first time that Luke has talked about Jesus going to Jerusalem. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him, that being Jesus, to be taken up. In other words, for him to be crucified and then to resurrect and be ascended and ascend, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's headed for Jerusalem. Why? For his crucifixion, to accomplish his mission. And we can see that in the preceding passages. If you look back to Luke in Luke 9 and you go back to, for example, verse 18, notice what's being talked about in this flow of this passage. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, Peter answered, the Christ of God. See, who am I? And then Jesus goes on to say, and what am I going to do? Verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In other words, here's who I am, here is my mission. He goes on to say, if you're going to follow me to Jerusalem, you're going to take up your cross with me. And then he goes on to be transfigured, and we learn once again about who he is. This is my son, the voice from heaven comes as he's transfigured. My chosen one, listen to him. He's come to save you. And then we go on as he heals people and again foretells his death and then talks about whether someone's for him or against him and says, then Luke transitions us by saying, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face for Jerusalem. See, he has come to say, I, Luke is arranging this to say, Jesus is the Christ, the savior king who's headed for Jerusalem. That's who he is. That's his mission. Look at Luke chapter 13. Continue this, another marker as he heads to Jerusalem. We see this taken up again in Luke 13 and verse 22. Luke indicates to us again in verse 22 of Luke 13. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward 
Jerusalem. Why? Why is he taking so long to get to Jerusalem? And if he's taking so long to get to Jerusalem, why does Luke keep pointing out that he's headed to Jerusalem when in fact he seems to be taking his time? Because Luke wants us to understand that Jesus' whole purpose and mission is to get to Jerusalem and everything he's doing in between here is pointing to who he is and what his mission is, thus why he's headed for Jerusalem. And so he goes on in verse 22, right after that, in verse 23, it says this, and someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for I tell you, Many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. In other words, he talks about himself as this narrow door. You have to enter through him on the heels of the statement about him going to Jerusalem. In both of these narrative markers in which Luke propels us forward toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, he brings us back to the central question. Who is Jesus and why has he come? What is his mission? This is Luke's central purpose to point us to who Jesus is and what his mission is. I I just want you to see that briefly in this book as sort of an overview coming back to here. Look back to Luke chapter 1 verse 30. Look back to Luke chapter 1 verse 30. Let's look at the inception of Christ or the conception when he's coming, his conception. Look, Look there. Luke chapter 1 verse 30 as he's conceived The angel comes to Mary in verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Now look what he goes on to say. He will be great, and he will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, Jesus is the one in your womb, Mary. That's what the angel's saying to her. And he is the savior king. And he's coming to save his people and to set up his kingdom. So the angel tells to Mary, look at chapter two now and verse 10. Let's hear what the angels say to the shepherds. Jesus is born, and the shepherds are out in the field, and the angels come to the shepherds, and the angels said to them, verse 10 of Luke 2, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is the Savior King. He has been born to you, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, which we ought to stop and ponder. The angels who have looked upon the glory of God for millennia see a baby in a manger and at this point in seeing the baby in a manger they sing glory to God in the highest this is the highest peak of the glory of God we have yet seen as the grace of God appears in Jesus and that's why they break out in praise because the point is who is this man and what is his purpose And that's what Luke is driving us after. We see it happen again in chapter 2, verse 25, as they bring Jesus to the temple. 
as Jews ceremonially would. And there was a man, verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now Jesus is coming as a baby here. And this man, Simeon, was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the promised Messiah. He was waiting for the Savior King. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit of the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, as he held a baby, blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation of the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. You see, the angels declare to us who Jesus is and what his mission is. They declare it not only to Mary at the conception, but to the shepherds at his birth. They declare it from the heavens to all who would hear. Simeon declares to us who Jesus is and what his mission is. John the Baptist declares to us who Jesus is and what his mission is. Look at chapter three and verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, he will save and judge. He will be the savior and the king. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is who he is, and this is what his mission is. We hear it from the angels. We hear it from Simeon. We hear it from John the Baptist. We even see it in the genealogy of Christ. You know, you come across these genealogies and you wonder why they're here. Why a long genealogy? Because we're learning something about who Jesus is. If you look at verse 23 of chapter, of chapter 3, Jesus, who began his ministry when he was about 30 years of age, being the son of, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, he goes down through the list and look at verse 38, the, sons of, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, and here's where Luke wants to drive us, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke wants us to know who he is. He is the second Adam. He is the son of God, the son of God that Adam failed to be, the son of God that Israel failed to be, the son of God that we failed to be. And Luke is driving us relentlessly at that point. Now let's hear it from Jesus himself, chapter four of Luke, verse 16. So we hear from the angels, from Simeon, from John the Baptist, from a genealogy that Luke places in, and now let's hear it from Jesus' own lips. Chapter four, verse 16, and he came to Nazareth, that being Jesus, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So they gave him a scroll, and he takes the scroll of Isaiah, and he unravels the scroll of Isaiah, and he goes to chapter 61, which means Jesus knew his Hebrew, clearly. To take a scroll and find chapter 61, they didn't have chapter and verse markers, okay? Didn't have those. Those were added way later. So he just goes to chapter 61, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is a messianic prophecy about the Messiah who would come, who would bring in the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. And he says, 
The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, favor, the jubilee. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See, so the angels tell us who he is what his mission is. Simeon tells us who he is, what his mission is. John the Baptist tells us who he is and what his mission is. A genealogy gives us those hints and Jesus himself tells us who he is and what his mission is. As we've seen here and later, we see Peter confessing who Jesus is and what his mission is. And many others. In fact, we'll see the Samaritan leper understand that today. But look forward to Luke 19 just to sort of round this out to a passage we'll come to in the future. I could go through every chapter of Luke and show you the same theme, but I chose to only pick a few so that we would be, wouldn't be here till tomorrow, okay? Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus has saved Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And in verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. And verse 10, for, now listen, Jesus tells you his, who he is and his mission statement. For the son of man, that's who he is, came for what? Here's his mission, to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is the Christ, the savior king who is seeking to save the lost. Every time we come to these geographical markers of Jesus heading for Jerusalem, Luke is bringing us back to the question of who is Jesus and what is his mission? He is headed relentlessly toward Jerusalem. He has set his face there because he is the savior king and it is his mission to go to the cross to save the lost. And this goes perfectly with Luke's stated objective. What's his objective? To strengthen the faith of Theophilus, that Theophilus would have certainty the things he believes. The question is, do we see the same pattern here in Luke 17, 11 and following? So look back to Luke 17, 11, where we are. And I think we do. Which is my burden to show you today. But I want to show you what brackets it a bit. On the way to Jerusalem... He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and then he's going to enter a village, and we've read this story about the leper already, but I want you to say after he heals these lepers and declares this leper that he's forgiven, this one leper that he's forgiven for his sins, he goes on in verse 20, or he's saved, he goes on in verse 20 and says this, being asked by the Pharisees, notice Luke transitions here from there to being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. See, here, here's a, a mission question. Here's a question about what's Jesus' business. When is the kingdom of God coming? He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, now catch this, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What's he talking about? Jesus saying, don't you see what I'm doing? I am the messianic king, and when the king comes, the kingdom is here. And I, as your king, am establishing my kingdom by heading to Jerusalem so I can save people into my kingdom. 
So that one day, as Paul says in Colossians 1, we give thanks. Why do we give thanks? Because we have been brought from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. So I think if we understand Luke's overall project, we see the same pattern in this passage. This passage is not just about thankfulness. Thankfulness certainly comes in, but it's not just about that. This is ultimately about the person of Jesus as our Savior King and true worship and thankfulness coming through him because of what he has done. That's what we're being tipped off to in Luke 17, 20 through 21. So having that passage in proper perspective, let's walk through it. That was all introduction. So let's get to the sermon. As we do... I think we'll see a familiar pattern. I want to look at the story of this leprous, this leprous Samaritan really through um, the lens of three basic ideas. You may have heard this pattern before. Um, it's, it's famously known as the pattern of the Heidelberg Catechism, but it's, it's the pattern of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Really is the pattern of the Christian life. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. So I want to use those that pattern of guilt, grace, and gratitude to walk through this passage, those lenses in a sense, so you can see what this story about the leprous Samaritan is really about. And I hope as you do, it will drive you to understanding who Jesus is, why he's come, and to cause thankfulness in you as it does with the Samaritan. So let's talk about guilt first. Look at Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 12. So Jesus is passing along, and as he entered a village, now notice he's still outside of the village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. These, these contextual clues are important so we understand because lepers would not have been inside the village. According to Levitical law, both Leviticus 13 and 14, lepers always stayed outside of the city. They were never inside of the village. And they always stood at a distance. They, in fact, had to stand at a distance. And as you came to them, they were supposed to stand so they're you know, downwind of you so that you don't get you know, any of their condition, right? And anyway, time they came near you, they're supposed to yell out to you, unclean, unclean. Now imagine the life of a leper. You have a horrific skin disease in which over time your nerves start to deaden. And so you start to bang your fingers and toes so much that it wasn't unusual for lepers to end up having stubs instead of fingers and toes. It wasn't unusual for them to ooze all sorts of fluids out of their body. They were quite uncomfortable they would have appendages that would break apart over time on their bodies. It was a miserable existence. Not only that, from the time they were leprous, they were thrown outside of the city. They weren't around their family. Now imagine if you're a dad and a husband and you get leprosy and you don't get to see your wife and kids anymore. You don't see your family and friends anymore. Your body is literally falling apart as you're outside the city. You don't get to have any kind of honor in the city anymore. Anytime anybody even walks near you, you have to yell out, unclean, unclean. That's the existence of these lepers. There's 10 of them there. We see that there, we, we seem to get from the indication of the text that nine of them are Jews and one's a Samaritan by Jesus' statement that one was a Samaritan, right? And it's interesting because Jews and Samaritans never ran together, but we also know that misery loves company, don't we? Jonathan Edwards talks about the kind of love where, um, where everybody's opposed to one another. You know, Jonathan Edwards is a Puritan pastor. Everybody, you know, like there's all these people opposed to us and we're all kind of the same. And so we love one another. He calls it pirate love, right? 
Can you think about pirates who are on a mission together? They don't actually love each other, but they're against the world and the world's against them, so they have a camaraderie like no other. You guys know what I'm talking about? It happens in cults. They get a deep camaraderie in the cult and they say, we've never had fellowship like this before. Why? Because we're the only ones who are right and they're all opposed to us. And so we have a love for one another and that we, we share this condition with, with re- regard to the world. You guys follow this? Here's the lepers. It doesn't matter that we're Jews and Samaritans. We're all unclean. Let's gather together. And so here they are together outside the village, Jesus entering. They're standing at a distance and they are lifting up their voices because they have to yell at him from a distance. They can't walk up to him and talk to him. And so they lift their voices saying, Jesus, master, interesting Word, they use the word master, indicating that in some sense they have some understanding of him as the disciples did, because this word is only used as disi- uh, by the disciples up until this point, and even after this point. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. See, they seem to understand that Jesus, in some way, is the master who can heal them. And that's what they want, they want to be healed. Verse 14, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. Now, what's that about? Why, why does Luke tell us that? Because what Jesus is saying is he takes these 10 lepers and it, according to Leviticus 14, verse 1 and 2, whenever you were healed from your leprosy and you thought the leprous disease was gone, you were presented before the priest and then the priest would declare you clean and then you were able to come back into the city. And so Jesus going, saying, go present yourself to the priests. Now, what's interesting here is you have Jews and Samaritans, and we know that Jews and Samaritans were alternatively seeing different groups of guys as priests slash different places as the temple, right? Mount Gerizim or or Jerusalem. But he says, go show yourself to the priest. In other words, on your way there, I'm going to heal you. What's amazing is they're not healed yet, but they're obedient, So they recognize he's the master. They know that he can heal them. They are commanded by him to go show show themselves to the priest before they're even healed. And as they went, they were cleansed. They were obedient to his command to go see the priest. Now that might seem kind of crazy, right? Master, heal us. Go show yourself to the priest. Present yourself as clean. But you haven't healed me yet. Go show yourself to the priest. Just present yourself as clean. Okay, so they go. And as they were going, they're cleansed. They're healed. Their appendages come back. Their skin is cleansed. The leprous disease is gone. He's healed them. And then verse 15, then one of them, now notice that interesting hint here, only one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. Now Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. This guy doesn't go to the priest. He's on his way, he's obedient in that, but when he sees that he's healed, he turns back and instead of going to the priest, and since he's a Samaritan, he would have gone to Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. He turns back, praising God with a loud voice. In the Greek, it's phones megale, which is this, um, we get the word megaphone from it. A great voice or a loud voice. He's praising God with a loud voice and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan 
In other words, we ought to be surprised that of these 10 men, the Samaritan is the one who comes back to Jesus and falls at his face at Jesus' feet and thanks him and praises God. Then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? See, why does only the Samaritan turn back and give thanks to Jesus? Well, let me, let me submit to you that I think it's because the Samaritan was the only leper who recognized that more than his skin was unclean. He was the only one who knew his soul needed cleansing. He knew he was a sinner who needed saving. The other lepers thought their circumstances needed changing and that Jesus could help with that, but they didn't see that the worst of their condition was not unclean skin, but an unclean heart. They may have been generally thankful. I imagine they were as they went to the priests. I'm thankful Jesus healed me. But they didn't know the depth of their problem. They didn't know their true uncleanness. They couldn't see it. I get that because of verse 19 and how Jesus concludes this, which I'll get to in a minute. But let me put it this way. They didn't know their true uncleanness. They're like those to whom Jesus told parables. Remember the crowds always gather around Jesus because they wanted something from him, but they didn't really see their need for him. So Jesus told them parables. And when the disciples asked him why they told them parables, Jesus told them it's because they're like their idols. They have, they're like statues they've carved. Those statues have ears that don't hear and eyes that don't see, and they've become just like what they worship. So I speak to them in parables. And this is the problem with the other nine lepers. They don't see their need. They have ears but don't hear and eyes but don't see. Further, they don't see the solution to their need. They don't see Jesus for who he is. Their eyes have been blinded by the God of this world to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They don't turn back to him. They continue on to the priest in the temple we imagine here in Jerusalem. Whereas the Samaritan comes back to Jesus. The most surprising of these men do see, does see. The Samaritan sees and the Jews don't. That's shocking. But that's, while that's a surprise, it fits with Luke's narrative as the sinners are the ones coming to Jesus, but the smug, religiously self-satisfied don't. We saw that in Luke 15, and we'll see it again in Luke 18. Which leads to the second point, which is grace. So this man sees his guilt, and the others do not. This man sees the grace of God in Christ, and the others do not. Look at verse 15 through 19 again. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not the ten cleansed, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he, Jesus, said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And the word there is, saved you. Your faith has saved you. It's cleansed you in the fullest sense. See, the Samaritan knew that Jesus was the grace of God and he need, knew he needed him. He was sent by Jesus to see the priest at the temple, but he knew he didn't need a priest at a temple. He needed the great high priest, the one who is the true temple. 
Remember Jesus had told the Samaritan woman at the well that people would no longer worship at the temple in Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem? Because he had come. And he was the temple of God, the presence of God, and he is the great high priest. And the Samaritan leper seems to recognize this and he comes back to him. You told me to go to a priest, but I need you. See, he he needed the only one who could save him. The other lepers didn't think they needed a savior for the souls. They just needed their circumstances cleaned up. I'm sure they thought well of Jesus for healing them. I'm sure they did. You can't imagine the other nine didn't think positively about Jesus, right? You know they had to have. He healed us. They certainly saw that he could clean up their messed up lives, they were even willing to ask his help and obey him to get his help. What they didn't see was that they had a far greater need. They needed to be saved. And that's what Luke's driving at in Luke 17, 19. They needed salvation. How often we come to Jesus for help with cleaning up our lives. We're even thankful to him for cleaning up our messes. We're willing to obey him for his help with our messes. We seem to imagine that that's what he's there for. Sadly, we don't see our greater need. So your greatest problem is not that your life is messed up and wrecked because of your sin. It's not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is not your marriage is a mess or your children don't believe or don't obey you. Your greatest problem isn't that you lost a job or that you're addicted to pornography Those aren't your greatest problems. Your greatest problems are not your deep, dark secrets and how they eat away at your soul. And your answer isn't to come to Jesus to ask him to clean you of your leprosy, of your circumstances, all the externals. And it isn't to give him thanks when he cleans up your mess for you. I'll obey you if you clean up my mess for me. I'll come to you to clean up my mess for me. But that's the end of it. Once you clean up my mess, then it's, I'm good. I don't need you for much else. Just come clean up the mess I've made of my life. So your greatest problem is that sin has separated you from a holy God and his wrath burns against you for your sin. Say, God hates sin. Yeah, but God doesn't send sin to hell. He sends people there. And that may not be very popular to say, but it's the truth. And you may not existentially feel that your greatest problem is God's wrath against your sin, but it is. Whether you feel it or not, Jesus didn't come to clean up your messy life, though he might. Hopefully he will. He came to save you. But save you from who or from what? See, we love to throw out this word, God saves. From what? He saved my marriage. Big deal. You could have a great marriage and go to hell for eternity. But we make it out like it's the biggest thing on the planet ever. It's great. Praise God, he saved your marriage. Did he save your soul? From who? From God. 
See, God's wrath is against you. Jesus is the son of God saving you from himself. When Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to the cross not to have some kind of weird display of God's love by crushing his son for no apparent purpose. He goes to the cross to display display God's love in showing that our sin is so wretched and vile that he has to crucify his son just to relate to us and that he loves us enough to do it. Where he pays all the wrath due to our sin and he takes it upon himself, substituting himself for us so that we could be forgiven and washed clean and be in relationship with him, adopted as children. And the Samaritan's leper, Samaritan leper's faith is that he sees his guilt before God and he sees that Jesus is the grace of God who has appeared to save his soul. So he praises God and returns to Jesus and falls on his face, thanking him for more than healing him of his leprosy. He sees in him the only one who can heal the leprosy of a sinful soul. And he worships him and gives thanks. And Jesus says, you've believed rightly. You're saved. See, that's what underlies true gratitude. Which leads to my third point, which is gratitude. The Samaritan realized his gratitude to God should be directed through Jesus. Notice that in verse 15 when you look there. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. See, his gratitude sprung from his faith in Jesus and God's kindness to him. He didn't just have a generic thankfulness for a generic kindness, but God's kindness to him led him to repentance. See, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness in healing him led him to see his guilt before God, his need for grace, and deep gratitude that God had provided that grace in the person of Jesus Christ. And any thanksgiving for any good gift of God that doesn't lead you to thankfulness for the giver of grace in Jesus Christ is a false thanksgiving. Did you hear that? If God's kindness to you in all the little things of life and all the big things of life doesn't lead you to repentance and seeing how, you, how undeserving you are and how he has made a gracious provision for your salvation in Jesus, then your thanksgiving isn't the kind of thanksgiving God is interested in. It's idolatrous worship is what it is. It's just thanksgiving for our own selfish ends. Further, any religious experience of God cleaning up your mess that leads you anywhere but on your face before Jesus is a false religious experience. True thanksgiving, true gratitude is a thanksgiving for Jesus, the grace of God who's appeared to remove our guilt. That's where true thanksgiving comes from. If you haven't found this kind of gratitude because you haven't seen your guilt before God and your need for grace, your need for Jesus, then today I urge you 
to look to Jesus in faith and be reconciled to God. He is your only hope. He will forgive your sins. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He will adopt you as his own. But to look to him. And if you don't see it, if you're like, I'm generally thankful, but I just don't see my need that way, then get on your face and beg God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. He loves to answer that prayer. Go home, get there on your face, and don't get up until he gives you eyes to see and ears to hear of your great guilt and his even greater provision in Jesus. Christians, this week when we approach Thanksgiving, let us practice true gratitude. Let us see every gift for which we're thankful as a gift which points us to the grace of God and Jesus that we don't deserve. Then God will, be answered, God will be honored. When you come this week and give thanks, give thanks as those who are praising God with your faces at the feet of Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to be humbled in seeing our guilt our sin and before you as a holy God and our need. Father, we pray that we would be likewise having our eyes open, our ears open to, to hearing and seeing your great provision that you've given us in Christ. We are thankful that there is more grace in Christ than there is any guilt in us and that we can look to him And that we can give thanks, that we can have true hearts of gratitude this week, that we can, in every gift that you give us, in every thing that we see before us, that we understand that it's just an undeserved, distant echo of the great grace and glory we have with you. Help us to understand that and see that and know that it comes from your son Jesus and him alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.